because you are everything to us, Father God. You're not just something. You're not a, a part of a thing, Father God. You're definitely not nothing, Father God. You're everything to us, Father God. Bless the praises of your people, Father God, as we just sit in this moment right now. The word says that if we had a thousand tongues, we still couldn't praise him enough. So I'm okay that I'm basically speechless right now because I wouldn't be able to praise him well enough anyway. still trying to get my mind just wrapped around what it is that I'm experiencing right now. I know for some of us it's uncomfortable to stand right now. You're wondering, what do I do with this? <laughs> I don't feel like I have what it takes to praise in the way that some other people are right now. I want you to understand that standing on your feet is a form of praise. Meditating on whatever you can and lifting up to the Lord is a form of praise. Being in this space right now is a form of praise. It is a testament to who God is in your life, whether you realize it or not. Please do not let the shouts of some diminish the belief that's within you right now. You are here because God purposed for you to be here right now. God did everything and ordained everything necessary to make sure that you could be in this space right now and experience everything that he has to offer. So I just ask you to be comfortable just sitting here for a moment. Be okay with the fact that the scripture and the title hasn't been posted yet. Just be okay enjoying God's presence for a moment. Be okay if you're uncomfortable not knowing what to do in God's presence right now. Either way, you're still in God's presence. Now I don't know about you, but there's no other place I'd rather be. So I'm actually going to be quiet for about 30 seconds myself so I can get centered and um, we can fellowship in God's word. So join me for 30 seconds. I don't care what you say to God. You can say, I believe, but help my unbelief. You can say, I really didn't want to be here today. You can say, God, I'm so glad you woke me up. I don't care what you say, just give it to God. Right now.
want us to get to a point where we get past saying God is good like it's a cliche and that it becomes a real thing in our lives. That's my uh, prayer right now. Uh, Father God, we just come to you in the name of Jesus, grateful for this day that you made, Lord God, grateful for the gift of another opportunity to experience you, Father God, to be loved on by you, Father God, to hear from you, Father God, to cry at your feet, to experience the praise and worship, to do whatever it is that you have for us to do today, Father God. We thank you that you didn't take it lightly that you wanted us here in this place right now. Father God, I just pray that um, as we enter into the worship of you through your word, Father God, that you just touch each and every heart and mind that's in the space right now. Lord God, you know what they need better than I, so I won't even try to name those things. I just pray that hearts and minds are open to receive what it is the Spirit is saying to them right now. And Lord, I pray that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart are acceptable in your sight. I pray that when people hear me, they actually are hearing you. Hide me behind the shadow of your cross. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, family. Today's scripture will come to us from the book of Mark, chapter 5. So I'll give you a moment to get there. Uh, the version that you'll see on the screen is the New Living Translation, um, but whatever translation works for you works for me. Your page is flipping. I see screens lighting up, so we got to give people a chance to get to the word however they want to. But when you've gotten there, could you please say amen? <clears throat> oh, that's a good number. All right, let's go and do this thing. Um, <laughs> so Mark chapter 5, verses 21 through 43 reads, and Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered round him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue, whose name was Jairus, arrived. And when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet, pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay your hands on her. Heal her so she can live. Jesus went with him and all the, uh, lost my spot, I'm sorry. Uh, and all the, <laughs> all the people, is it up there for me? Oh, okay, thank you. I was like, this way. <laughs> thank you, sir. Uh, so, uh, pleading for please come in. All the people followed crowding around him, and a woman in the crowd had suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. She had suffered a great deal from many doctors, and over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. 
For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed of her terrible condition. Jesus realized at once that the healing power had gone out from him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? His disciples said to him, look at the crowd pressing around him. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell to her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her daughter, your faith has made you well, go in peace. Your suffering, your suffering is over. While he was still speaking, her messengers arrived from the home of Jairus, the leader of the synagogue, and they told him, your daughter is dead. There's no use troubling the teacher now. But Jesus, <laughs> but Jesus overheard them and said to Jairus, don't be afraid, just have faith. Then Jesus stopped the crowd and wouldn't let anyone go with him except Peter, James, and John, the brother of James. When they came to the home of the synagogue leader, Jesus saw the commotion and weeping and wailing. And he went inside and asked, why all this commotion and weeping? The child isn't dead, she's only asleep. <laughs> and the crowd laughed at him. But he made them all leave and he took the girl's father and mother and his three disciples into the room where the girl was lying. And holding her hand, he said to her, Talitha Kum, which means little girl, get up. And the girl who was 12 years old immediately stood up and walked around. They were overwhelmed and totally amazed. Jesus gave them strict orders not to tell anyone what had happened. Then he told them to give her something to eat. If I was to give you all a message for today's sermon, it would simply be, where do you place your hope? You may be seated. As I was thinking and preparing on this message, uh, those who prepare messages get where I'm coming from. Sometimes you just feel like you got a, a writer's block or you're kind of stuck. It's like, what is it that God wants me to talk about? I mean, I could name a bunch of scriptures and stories, but none of them were speaking to me just yet. And I was honestly getting a little nervous. I was like, man, I'm supposed to preach here, and I got nothing. And all of a sudden, there's no better way to describe it, the word hope kept popping up. Hope, hope, hope. I had never really delivered a message on hope. I can't say that I've heard a lot of messages preached about the concept of hope specifically. Yes, it's in scripture, but I can't think of too many times where somebody really dissected and focused on the concept of hope. And then shortly thereafter, uh, <laughs> Naomi is my witness. It seemed like 
situation after situation came up where hope was a concern. And what I realized that the people that I was talking to were brothers and sisters in Christ. And the issue that I found out was it was not the issue of where their faith resided. It was where they placed their hope. So today, if you're patient with me, we're going to explore what it means to place our hope in the one we claim to have our faith in. So where do we place our hope? Langston Hughes, as many of you all know, was an African-American poet, playwright, and activist who was regarded by many as the face of the Harlem Renaissance movement. And in 1951, Hughes published a poem entitled Harlem, which says, what happens to a dream deferred? Does it dry up like a raisin in the sun or fester like a sore and then run? Does it stink like rotten meat or crust and sugar over like a syrupy sweet? Maybe it just sags like a heavy load or does it explode? You see, Brother Hughes saw the hopes and dreams of so many black Americans crushed under the systematic oppression of Jim Crow apartheid. And he challenged those who read the poems to consider the emotional, spiritual, and psychological impact on people who never see their hopes come to fruition. And if you learned anything about the plight of black America during the civil rights era, you would know the impact of denied dreams led to a range of emotions such as anger, frustration, and despair for some. And although this poem was written over 70 years ago, I believe its words still resonate in the hearts of so many of us today. Because the truth is, you don't have to have been black and grown up in the 1950s to experience the feeling of having your dreams deferred and your hopes dashed. Even as I speak about the concept of hope and dreams deferred, I can imagine that some of you right now are processing moments, past or present, where it seems like the things you hoped for were out of reach and impossible to grasp. And I can only imagine the thoughts and feelings going through your mind and body right now. And if you don't mind, I'd like to pose to you this question. Where do you place your hope? Even as I ask you that question, I'm reminded of the weight I feel over broken relationships that I hoped would have been repaired by now. Unmet goals that I desired to achieve my inability to get over certain hurdles that I hoped that I would clear, just thinking if I can get over this one, everything's gonna be all right. And as I process that, I'm stuck with these feelings that I wish that I was immune to. I experience the pains over and over again that come with deferred hopes and dreams, and the question that I even must ask myself is, where do I place my hope? Recently, someone who I care about deeply gave me a phone call. And when he called me, immediately I heard weeping and wailing on the other side of the line. Not even a hello, I literally pick it up and I hear, ah. 
This grown young man from his gut just viscerally crying out to me. And once he could finally gather his words, it took about eight minutes for him to breathe enough and calm down to actually speak. And he expresses the mental and emotional and spiritual struggle that he's dealing with right now. You see, he's had a few missteps in life, and although he's trying to make it right, he feels as though he just can't get a break in life. He told me that he was actually upset when he wakes up in the morning because it means it's another day that he has to endure. And the question I want to ask him so badly is where do you place your hope? And just the last week, I spoke with mothers who were concerned about their children's mental and emotional well-being, multiple co-workers whose parents are in dire health, people who are tired of fighting the good fight for those on the margins and seeing little fruit for their labor, couples whose marriages are hanging on by a thread, and others who are struggling to conceive children. And I think to myself, where do they place their hope? We have wars going on throughout the world. Inflation is impacting everyone's finances. Families are struggling to make ends meet. And our government seems to be more focused on dueling with one another than taking care of its people. And the question that I ask for all of us is where do we place our hope? And before we proceed any further, I want to take a moment to make it clear what it means to possess hope. Because I think if we don't do that, we're going to realize that some of us have confused hope and faith. There's actually a difference between hope and faith. And if we're going to understand the beauty of Mark chapter 5 and the story that we see from Jairus and our sister, we need to understand there's a difference between our hope and our faith. And the simplest way for me to say it to you um, that just it speaks to everybody, hopefully, in the room, is that faith is something that we actually possess. We possess faith. Hope is the action that we choose to take. All right, so stay with me. Faith is something we possess. Hope is the action I choose to take. So I'll start with something simple. I have faith that water will quench my thirst. So in order to quench my thirst, I go to the water bottle. My hope is to have my thirst quenched. I place faith in the bottle, or the water in the bottle. I take a sip. My thirst is quenched. When we think about this biblically, faith is the foundation for which our understanding comes. Faith says that everything we read in the Word of God about God proves who God is. Our faith is rooted in actual evidence. Faith is not a feeling. A lot of times we speak about faith as something that we feel within us. That's actually not true. You don't feel faith. You believe because there's been evidence that proves that God is real. There's evidence that proves that Jesus is who he says that he is. 1 Corinthians 
15, 3 through 8 kind of helps support this, right? People were willing to die for the belief that Jesus was resurrected. And we ask, well, why is that? Well, Paul helps us to understand. He says that I pass on to you what was most important and what had also been passed on to me, that Christ died for our sins just as the Scripture said. So Paul is saying that the Word has already made it known that Jesus died for our sins, but Paul goes even further. What he says is he was buried and he was raised from the dead on the third day just as the Scriptures say. You see, these things are being backed up by the actual Word of God that Paul is reading. And he was seen then, so now we have eyewitnesses' accounts. He was seen by Peter and then by the Twelve. And after that, he was seen by more than 500 of his followers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have died. Then he was seen by James and later by all the apostles. And last of all, as though I had been born at the wrong time, I also saw him. Understand, Paul's faith was rooted in what we had seen to be true. If water didn't prove to quench my thirst, then why would I drink it? And I know that's kind of trippy for some of us to think, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. faith isn't a feeling, but it's just, it's just not. And that's okay. I'd rather have a God that's proven himself to be true. And that it's evidence to me that he's real. That's what separates our faith. Amen? <laughs> faith is the unwavering belief that God is who he says he is. So the question I ask you is about hope, right? So we're going to contrast faith and hope. Hope, on the other hand, is a feeling of sorts. It's, hope is an attitude. Hope is an attitude. Hope is the expectation that something will come to pass, and it's a choice to place our trust in something that we have faith in. So I'll say that again. Hope is an attitude, it's a choice. It's an expectation that something will come to pass. It is a choice to place trust in something that we have faith in. So I continually ask us where do we place our hope because it's important for us to understand that hope is an action word. Similar to love, hope is an inward feeling that is outwardly expressed in some form or another. And you can tell who or what someone loves by the way they treat a person or an object. And similarly with hope, you can tell where someone's faith lies by where they place their hope. When a person's love is properly expressed, value is added to that object. The object of their affection feels lifted up. It feels important. Progress is made because proper love is given to the proper place. However, when love is inappropriately expressed, it becomes nothing more than a sounding brass or a clanging cymbal. It's wasted energy. No value is added. Things may actually digress because love was improperly placed. And then there's damage that's been done, and we have to repair to make that right. Most of us have experienced the feelings of improper love, or if we're being real, have given improper love at times. And if we're being even more real, we know the impact of that improper love that was given. Well, it's the same way with hope. When hope is properly placed, 
A sense of joy and contentment can come over someone because they know that regardless of the outcome, everything will be all right. But what value does misplaced hope have? Where my wife and I grew up in North Carolina, the local mall had a fountain where people could throw coins into a pool of water and make a wish. If you're old enough, you may have had one of those too. Uh, <laughs> and if you didn't have that, you may have encountered a wishing well, you know, where people go by, they drop in their coins, they literally think of something that they hope for, and then they literally drop the coin in there. And if you haven't done that, have you ever blown out a candle on a cake and thought you wanted something to happen? It's all the same concept. <laughs> and we throw it in there and we would expect or hope, hope, <laughs> that something would come to pass. And as I was writing this, I started thinking about most, well, I don't know the age in here. A lot of you all remember the movie The Goonies. Thank you, old people. I appreciate y'all. Thank you, my generation. Some of y'all like Goonies. I don't know what that is. IMDb, it's, 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 it's an 80s classic. That's all I'm saying. <laughs> but why I'm mentioning Goonies is this. The movie centers on a group of kids who um, the bank is about to take their families' homes. And they hear about the treasure of a pirate named One-Eye Willie. And they think, <laughs> you know, and they think if we can just get our hands on that treasure, one-eyed willies, we can save all our homes. So they kind of go on these series of adventures and eventually leads them into these like underground caves and caverns. And as they're going along the way, they run into a space where there's a bunch of coins and money just laying around. And they look up and realize that it's the bottom of the wishing well that was in town. And naturally, what kids do, they see a bunch of money, what are they going to do? They go dive on in, they go pick it up, they start trying to stuff it in their pockets, they're trying to get it right. But one of the young ladies, who's a little bit older, she told them, hey, we need to stop. Stop, don't take these people's coins. These coins were somebody's wishes. And it's not right for us to take them. And one of the young men said, fine, I will put down every other coin but this coin. This coin right here was my dream. It was my wish, and it did not come to pass. And I want my money back. The issue that we see modeled there is what we see all the time. His hope was broken because he placed his faith in the wrong thing. The value of his hope meant nothing because the wishing well could do nothing to make the situation right. Brothers and sisters, our hope is only as valuable as where we place it. The boy's coin had no value as the well couldn't make a difference. How often do we find ourselves in need of hope? But we reach out to any and everything instead of the one true source where we should go. And then we find ourselves hopeless, angry, frustrated, and in despair, all because we threw our spiritual coins into the wrong well. I didn't say you didn't have faith. I said, where are we placing our hope? The question is not if you're a believer. I choose to believe if you're in this room, you're a believer, or you're going to be soon enough. The question is, where are you placing your hope? There are plenty of biblical scriptures that emphasize hope, but one that I think helps us to support this idea of hope 
and faith to see how they mix together, or I used to, lo I love it anyways, Jeremiah 29, 11 through 13. Many of us know verse 11, it says, for I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. <laughs> the plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. We'll walk around all day, the Lord got good plans for me, he'll give you a future and a hope. Oh, God is so good, Jeremiah 29, 11. But what I actually love more than that, I even have this plaque in my office, is the subsequent scriptures that come after those. Because it says, to get that future hope, it says, in those days when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. So listen to the whole thing now. I know the plans I have for you, says the Lord. They are plans for good and not for disaster, to give you a future and a hope. In those days when you pray, when you pray, not if you pray, when you pray, I will listen. If you look for me wholeheartedly, not half-heartedly, not half-stepping, not, hey, God, did you hear me? If you look for me wholeheartedly, you will find me. Amen. And to put some context around that, in the passage, the Israelites, God's chosen people to make him known, were in captivity to the Babylonians, and they were tired of being in captivity. They were ready to return back home. So they said, God, when are you going to send us back to the place that we want to be? And in the midst of their struggles, God assured them that while he's not going to return them right now, that he has good plans for them. And there is a reason to be hopeful. However, there was a caveat to the hope that the people must seek God wholeheartedly. What he's saying is, I'm going to give you the hope, but if the hope is not placed back in me, then the hope is useless. What he's encouraging them to say is, listen, I've got you covered. When are you going to put your eyes on me? When are you going to realize that the problem can't be solved by what you're trying to do? It's trusting in me to do what I got to do. Some of us in here right now feel like we're in our own personal exiles, our own Babylons, and it feels like there isn't much hope. But God is telling us that if we only do put our hope in him, that one way or another everything will be all right. God did not immediately remove the exiles from Babylon right away, and he might not instantly eliminate your challenges. But he promises that if we put our hope in him, everything will turn out according to his will and his purpose for our lives. Not our will and our purpose. I don't know about you, but I'm old enough now to know that whenever I try to do things according to my will, they never go the way that I want them to. If you're not as old as me yet and don't realize that, trust me, take it as a word of advice. Your will don't mean nothing. It don't mean a thing. Trust in God. Trust in what God is saying. Trust in what God is doing. And in today's scripture, we see two people who have two very distinct stories, but yet they're going to experience similar outcomes simply because they put their hope in Jesus. One is a synagogue leader who goes by the name of Jairus, and another is a sister only known to us as the woman with an issue of blood. Sidebar, for half a second, I almost gave her a name just for the sake of the story, but I didn't want to dishonor her. That's how God wants her to be known. There's a reason for that. So um, be patient if every time I say woman with the issue of blood, because that's how the Bible wants us to understand her. 
And what's so interesting, even though God comes through for both of them, and this is why I love this story, and this is why I'm glad God directed me to it. Hope is not cookie cutter. We're all dealing with different things. We're all in different situations in life. So what's neat about this is we see these juxtapositions of the two people. See, for example, the woman had suffered for 12 years. Jairus had a dying 12-year-old daughter. The woman was considered too unclean to be around others, while Jairus would have been considered too clean to be around the woman. The woman had zero social capital, while Jairus has a level of prestige that's been attached to him. But despite the differences that we see from the outside, what's similar about these two people is what's most important. And what's most important is where they place their hope and how they demonstrated their hope. And through Jairus and the woman with the issue of blood, we realize that hope has five attributes. We see that hope is demonstrated through our humility. Hope is expressed through vulnerability. Hope at times often looks like desperation. Hope is an exercise in patience. Hope requires perseverance. And if you're willing to journey with me for just a few more minutes, we're going to see how all of these attributes in one way or another reveal themselves through the actions of these two hopeful individuals. Mark 21 through 25 says, Jesus got into the boat again and went back to the other side of the lake where a large crowd gathered around him on the shore. Then a leader of the local synagogue whose name was Jairus arrived and when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet pleading fervently with him. You notice that it says he fell at Jesus' feet pleading fervently with him. My little daughter is dying, he said. Please come and lay hands on her. Heal her so she can live. So Jesus goes with him and all the people followed, crowding around him. Hope often looks like desperation, demonstrated through humility and expressed through vulnerability. Because as our story begins, Jesus has encountered Jairus. And as we hear, Jairus is the leader of a local synagogue. And for those who may not know or if you do know or a fresher is, what that means is he'd basically be responsible for kind of looking after the building, doing the administrative stuff, supervising the, the daily's classes, um, supervising the worship. He'd find rabbis to come in and teach the people. I mean, he was running the place. And because of that position, he'd be recognized as a spiritual leader within the community. But that also means he would likely have connections to the Pharisees, who, as we know, were going to be enemies of Jesus. And it's likely that Jairus was probably warned to steer clear of them. Speaking to Jesus could result in career and social ostracism. However, what we see through Jairus is a desperation and as we said, hope looks like desperation. It's demonstrated through humility and expressed through vulnerability. Because according to verse 23, Jairus tells Jesus that his daughter is dying. And just to be clear, as the state of Jairus' daughter, when we translate dying from the Greek, eschaton, what it is saying is that it literally means at the end. So what Jesus was saying to Jairus is, Jesus, my daughter doesn't have weeks to live. She has minutes 
to live. Death was literally knocking at her doorstep. She was not going to see the next day. It's not one of those where she knew she had six months to live. She had minutes, maybe hours at best. And Jairus being the father that I would assume any good father would be, he's going to fight to find a way to keep his baby girl alive. So he goes to Jesus and he humbles himself by falling at the feet of Jesus. Why is that such a big deal? Because socially speaking, Jairus would have no business bowing down to a traveling preacher who came from the hood of Nazareth. Don't forget Jesus' social standing at this time. Remember, people say, could anything good come from there? Matter of fact, the people were his own disciples. A man of prestige is not putting himself down lower to somebody beneath him asking for help. Excuse me, not asking, pleading for help. But it was because of that desperation, because of that belief, that Jesus came. For a lot of us, the biggest obstacle to hope and placing our hope in Jesus is our inability to set our own egos aside and to get out of our own way. Too often, we feel determined to prove that we can do things on our own. We're determined to prove our assurance because desperation means weakness. I think about um, some of you all exercise, lift weights. Some of you all may have seen the commercial. Uh, it's a mental health commercial, it's out. And it's a brother who, he's trying to lift weights, he's trying to bench press, and the weight gets stuck on his chest. And somebody comes over and says, hey, bro, you need help? And he's like, nah, I got it, I'm good. He's like, bro. You look like you really use some help. Nah, man, my family can't know, man. I gotta, I gotta be able to do this, man. I gotta be strong. It's like, bro, if you, you need help, you don't get help. This weight is going to crush you. He's like, nah, nah, I got it, I got it. How many of us are that brother on that bench press holding a weight that we are not equipped to handle? Telling others and telling God, I got this because we don't want anybody to know that we're struggling. And because we don't want anybody to know we're struggling, then God can't do what God needs to do in our lives. But Jairus understood that the weight was too much for him to bear. He understood his religious standing didn't matter. He understood his connection with the Pharisees weren't gonna bring his baby girl health and bring her back to life. He knew all of that had to go. He realized that if he did not go to Jesus, then his hope would be improperly placed. And because he did that, Jesus was willing to go with him. Hope requires desperation and perseverance. So the story moves on. We have a woman who's in the crowd who suffered for 12 years with constant bleeding. The scripture says she had suffered a great deal from many doctors. And over the years, she had spent everything she had to pay them. But she had gotten no better. In fact, she had gotten worse. She had heard about Jesus, so she came up behind him through the crowd and touched his robe. For she thought to herself, if I can just touch his robe, I will be healed. And immediately the bleeding stopped and she could feel in her body that she had been healed from her terrible condition. So here we are in the story. Jesus has decided to support Jairus who has humbled himself. And let us not forget Jairus' position. I hope that we can hold on to where Jairus is at because the story kind of takes a, we like, oh, it's a blessed turn, but I'm not sure if Jairus sees it that way. We'll get back to that in a second. So they're walking down the road, and this sister that we know, we're introduced her as a woman with an issue of blood. And from what we can gather, this is an incurable condition that she's been dealing with for 12 long years. I don't know about you, but I can't imagine dealing with anything unpleasant for 12 
long years. I don't like things to be unpleasant for 12 long minutes. Never mind 12 long years. But this sister suffered from it. And not only did she experience the discomfort of bleeding for 12 years, we learned, and we didn't put it up here, but if you need to go back and reference, go to Leviticus 15, because that tells you the actual impact of what this sister was dealing with during this time. Because she had a constant bleeding, she experienced social separation from all members of the community, including her family, because she was considered unclean. Being around her, bumping into her, touching her, or her touching you, would then make you unclean too, so nobody uh, wanted to deal with her. They all stepped away. We also learn from Leviticus 15 that her being unclean meant spiritual separation. Because when she was unclean, she cannot go into the temple. She cannot go to the synagogue. She cannot go to the God that she needed to give her the healing. Man, think about that. I, what was just hitting me? Laws set up in a way that you can't go to the God that can do the healing. How often do we in the church set up barriers to prevent people from finding hope in Jesus? How many times do we come in here? This is not on script, by the way. How many times do we come in here praising, singing, worshiping, God is good, and somebody's right outside that door in need of something, and what do we do? We turn our back. We close the door. We tell them that God ain't here for them. We walk right past him. That person texts us in need of hope, and we ignore it. Imagine what this sister's feeling and going through right now. Something that half of us in the room literally can't get. She experienced a spiritual separation. And then to make matters worse, the sister experienced financial desperation. Because we find out she has spent everything that she had on doctors only to get worse. And the truth is, many of us in here can relate to what the sister went through. We have tried to place our hope in doctors. We've tried to place our hope in the government. We've tried to place our hope in our jobs. We've tried to place our hope in family and friends and loved ones, only to find that we don't experience the healing that we really need. We don't find the rest that we really need. That turmoil, that thing that's driving us crazy is still driving us crazy. And we find ourselves at the end of our ropes, feeling like we have run out of solutions. And the truth of the matter is it would have been completely understandable if our sister just gave up. But as we know, that was not the case. According to the scripture, we learn that she hears of a man named Jesus, a man named Jesus, a teacher named Jesus, a brother from the hood named Jesus, who was capable of healing her from her ailment. And it was at that moment that she realized that maybe she had placed her hope in all of the wrong things the entire time. She had thrown her literal coins at the wishing well of the doctors, only to find that while they may have meant well, they were not the actual solution. As we stated earlier, oftentimes hope looks like desperation, and thankfully, for our sake and for hers, she did not allow her desperation to lead her into despair. Oftentimes that happens for us. We feel so desperate we don't see a way out. We get into a pit of despair and depression thinking that there's no way anything is going to change. But she did not allow that to happen. No, what she did is she saw a crowd and she did not allow that crowd 
to serve an excuse for her to get to Jesus. She didn't let the fear of being judged for being unclean stop her from going after the one thing that she knew she needed at that very moment. She fought through the crowds and she persevered until she could touch the fringe on the hem of his robe. Understand, she did not grab his shoulder. The fringe of a robe, if you do not understand how that works in Jewish custom, the rabbis would wear a covering. That covering had about four little tassels, one on each corner of the robe. Typically, sometimes they'd hang around the waist, oftentimes they hung all the way down here. We read that the sister touched the tassel. So what that means, that sister got down likely on her hands and knees fighting through a crowd just so she could get to Jesus. She was willing to get it in the mud, so to speak. And that, my brothers and sisters, is what hope looks like. It is literally and sometimes figuratively understanding that everybody can't get down on their hands and knees. Getting down on your knees, hope is fighting to get to God and to let him know that you desperately are in need of him during your time of trial and tribulation. Hope is saying, I'll do whatever it takes to get close to the Father. How many of us are willing to get down on our hands and knees? How many of us are willing to tell Jesus we are desperate for him? It's nice to sing it when the worship team is saying it, but do you say it in your own prayer closet? Do you say it when you're by yourself? Do you say it when your brother and sister comes to you struggling? You say, let's get down on our knees right now. Because I don't have the answer. Too many of us want to have the answer for everything. I don't have the answer. But I know who does. I can't fix your situation, but I know who can. I can't give you peace, but I know who will give you a peace that surpasses all understanding and will rule your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. How many of us are desperate enough to get down and tell our brother and sister, I actually don't know, but I know who does? Verse 30 goes on to say, Jesus realized that once the healing power had gone out for him, so he turned around in the crowd and asked, who touched my robe? And his disciples said to him, look at the crowd pressing around you. How can you ask who touched me? But he kept on looking around to see who had done it. And then the frightened woman, trembling at the realization of what had happened to her, came and fell on her knees in front of him and told him what she had done. And he said to her, daughter. You don't understand how important it is that he said daughter. Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace. Your suffering is over. See, at this point, Jesus asked who touched him because he felt the power leaving his body as we read. And, of course, the disciples, and what's funny, depending on which translation you read, the disciple really meant Peter, who's always got something to say all the doggone time. People don't want to keep his mouth shut. Peter, I'm, I'm going to fight for you. I'm gonna, Peter, just be quiet sometimes, man. Just, just, just pipe down, bro. <laughs> but, of course, in their typical fashion, they challenge Jesus to find out who touched them. But Jesus insists on finding out, and eventually the sister comes out and confesses everything. Now, here's what's actually beautiful about the story. If you think for any minute Jesus didn't know who touched them, you're sadly mistaken. Jesus wanted her to confess. Jesus already knew who touched him. And the question is, why would he want it? And there's probably a couple of reasons, and maybe there's some more, but I came up or studied and found two. It's probably the better way to say it. I, nothing came from me. One, because she was unclean and an outcast within the community, people wouldn't have believed her if she said that she was healed. It had been 12 years of not being healed. Who's going to believe her all of a sudden when she says that she's healed? 
So Jesus wanted to give her the chance to make sure while he was present to back her up so she could full, experience full restoration. And the other reason I believe is we got to remember that her condition made her unclean according to the law of Leviticus. And if she touched anybody else, they too would be unclean. Therefore, she was actually afraid to touch Jesus because she would be afraid of making him unclean as well. But this is the beauty of Jesus. This is the amazing part about Jesus. Watch this. Jesus, in his grace and mercy, doesn't say to her, woman, why did you touch me? Your actions have made me dirty. No, instead he says, daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace, your suffering is over. What Jesus is trying to communicate is there are those of us in here that we do not come to Jesus in hope because we feel we're too unclean to be loved by Jesus. We feel that Jesus won't work with us because there's too much baggage in our lives. We feel that somehow if we come in the presence of Jesus, we're going to taint him. But Jesus is trying to let us know there's no way that anything that we can do will ever make him unclean. We take our dirtiness to Jesus and Jesus makes us clean. We don't make him dirty. What Jesus is telling us is that there's nobody that's too unworthy to approach God. You just have to put your hope in him. So where will you place your hope? And understand that hope requires patience. Now, remember, we had a brother named Jairus a while ago, right? He's actually the one who started the whole story. This is the, you know, prestigious job. He gets down on hands and knees. Maybe girls will die, God. I need you to touch her, to heal her. Let's go. Jairus on the way. Why is this man stopping and talking to his sister? Why is he helping her when he said he was going to help me? And while he's watching that happen, we won't read every verse of it, but we find out that members of Jairus' household come and tell him, hey, man, baby girl is gone. We tried. She didn't make it. The funeral procession is actually there right now. People have already started the ceremony. There's no need to bother Jesus right now. But Jesus, but Jesus, <laughs> gosh, but Jesus, sensing what Jairus was feeling, maybe he overheard it, turns to Jairus and says, don't be afraid, just have faith. And they go to the home, and when they get in there, you see people weeping and wailing. And uh, I don't know if you know much about this culture, but yes, there were family members who were in there that were broken hearted. There are also these professional mourners and weepers. People are playing the flute. They're, they're crying. Like, the people literally were paid to cry. That's what they do. Uh, I believe the law said that you had to at least have two in your household that represented the community weeping and wailing over the situation. And Jesus walks in there. He sees all this going on. He's like, hey, baby girl ain't dead, man. She's only asleep. And everybody just busts out into laughter. I can only imagine what Jairus is feeling, the wave of emotions from the moment that the woman with the issue of blood was healed to getting the news that his baby girl is dead, to still walking, knowing that she's dead in the house, to seeing people crying, and then seeing people laugh. Because the thing that he placed his hope in has not come to pass as of yet. I can imagine Jairus is thinking to himself, why did I even come to see this guy? Now I've risked 
my reputation. I've risked my job. I got down in front of people on my hands and my knees, cried out, asking for help, and he got, took care of somebody else first. And now my own people are laughing at me. They think that is funny. I know there's somebody in here. I've been somebody in here who has doubted the goodness of God because I didn't see something happening the way that I thought it should. I actually put my hope in Jesus and thought that I had made a mistake. But I'm here to tell you, do not assume because it does not go the way you think that your hope is misplaced. When it comes to God, your hope is never misplaced because what we do read is this. Jesus tells him, I know where you are. I know how you're feeling. Don't lose heart. There's that still small voice whispering to you, that brother or sister who keeps you encouraged to tell you, do not lose heart. And by the way, in this story, here's a lesson for everybody. Be careful who you keep in your circle. You better watch who you keep in your circle. Everybody who's around you ain't for you. A whole lot of people are down to be with you around the mess, but they're not there to pray with you, to worship with you, to fast with you, to journey with you through what you're really going on. They just want to hear what's happening. And that's what Jairus was experiencing, a whole bunch of professionals, phonies, fakes, people paid to show up and do whatever, because who on earth can instantly snap from crying to laughter, just like that? That means it's not authentic. It's not real. So you can only imagine what Jairus is feeling. But Jesus, but Jesus, but Jesus grabs baby girl by the hand and he says, get up. <laughs> and baby girl gets up. Remember that sometimes hope requires perseverance. Hope requires that you're willing to sit and trust and wait just a little while longer. Hope doesn't even necessarily mean that the way you want to go is going to go that way as you're waiting and trusting and hoping. But what it does mean is you can experience a peace in Jesus, knowing that he is going to shepherd you along the way. I can imagine the only thing that helped Jairus stay in tune was the fact that Jesus was with him. I can't imagine him being encouraged if he went back by himself. And I ask you to remember that God is always with you. In closing, as we reflect on what we have seen, I hope that you have taken this opportunity, as I have, to not explore our faith in Jesus, but to be real with ourselves and examine the hope that we have and where do we place it. My guess is at times you probably found, <laughs> I'm locked in. I'm trusting Jesus with this. What areas of your life are you not trusting him with? What areas are you telling Jesus that you've got this? What areas of your life are you not able to grow because God is not involved in it? And remember that Jesus is here for any and everybody. Remember Jairus had a daughter. The woman suffered for 12 years. Jairus was important. This woman was considered nobody in the eyes of society. Jairus was probably pretty wealthy and doing well for himself. The woman was poor. Jairus came publicly. She came secretly. Jairus thought that he had to do a lot to heal his daughter. The, thought, the woman thought all she needed to do was touch the tassel of his garment. Jesus responded to the woman immediately, and he responded to Jairus after a bit of a delay. Jairus' daughter was healed secretly 
the woman was healed publicly. There's no situation, no person, no way that God can't do what God says he's going to do. The question is, where will you place your hope? Let's pray. Father God, we just um, come to you right now in the name of Jesus. Just, uh, yeah, God, um, hopefully encouraged because we know that our hope is found in you. Possibly a little convicted because we realize we don't always place our hope where it belongs, Father God. Some of us are coming right now hopeless, feeling like a situation, whether it's a uh, health or marriage or job or so many other things that I can't even name right now, Father God. Raising the child is difficult, whatever it may be, Lord. We come feeling like the situation is hopeless. We feel like we've tried everything that we can and seen nothing happen. Lord, please remind us that our hope is found in you. Help us to humble ourselves. Help us to be vulnerable with you, Father God. Help us to realize it's okay to be desperate. Help us to understand we may need to be patient and persevere, but if we do these things, Father God, we will experience the hope in the future that you have for us. We thank you for this time, Lord God. We pray um, that those who are just needing that, that touch of hope from you, they receive it. In Jesus' name, amen.